Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. I'm very excited to bring you today's guest. I actually always write notes whenever I'm editing the podcast and I wrote a page of notes for this one. Tom Chatfield is a leading writer, thinker and speaker on technology and digital culture. We sat on a panel together a few years back and he's really interesting and I just immediately thought I need to get him on the podcast that is what I love about doing this podcast, to be honest, is I just, um, I meet people and I think you would be perfect and think I want to talk more on that topic. So Tom, he's consulted for firms ranging from Google, Coca-Cola, to Time Out. He's interested in improving our experiences of digital culture with a special interest in AI and the psychology of human-machine interactions and the ethics of tech. He's a global TED speaker. He's had over a million views of his talk, Seven Ways Games Reward the Brain. This episode really is to talk about his new book that's just come out. It's his seventh book. It's called Critical Thinking. It's just come out with Sage Publishing and it's a really brilliant book all about using different tools to make sure that you're thinking more clearly. And I feel like it's so relevant for now, especially in this age of digital overwhelm and not knowing what you think about certain things. He's also a columnist for BBC's technology site and also BBC Future. He guest lectures at universities in the UK and all over Europe. Yeah, he's he's incredible. He took his doctorate at St John's College, Oxford, and was named one of the world's 100 leading thinkers by think tank LSDP. So yeah, he really knows his stuff. And this book, Critical Thinking, is super interesting. Some of the things that came out of our talk were the word expert and what that means now in this technology era, how to sniff out bullshit and tools to do that, which is very useful, Uh, the future of tech and how to deal with incessant emails and how to, on the whole, take a bit more time before we just sort of lash out or reply to things really quickly. Uh, There's loads of stuff that came out of this episode, um, tons, and I have a feeling I'm going to listen back to this episode in the future because there's so much stuff that Tom um, says that really, really makes sense. So hope you enjoy it. Look forward to your feedback. And thanks again for listening to this podcast. Um, I still love making it. Here it is. So we were just chatting outside actually about the fact that I saw the video for Critical Thinking and I find that really interesting that I watched a video and actually it worked, the promotion worked, because I wanted to read the whole book afterwards. I'm so chuffed to hear that. Um, I guess one of the interesting things is that these days a book is a conversation starter. You don't sort of stand there and just pronounce the final word and push it out. If you're lucky, people will kind of pick it up and talk back and the book will seed all kinds of other conversations that you can join in at any point. Exactly, and that's and that's exactly what the book is, isn't it? Um, so I wanted to start from the beginning. So um, we met, and this is what I love about the podcast, is I kind of get to draw in on these amazing people that I've met like along the way. So I think it was like two years ago we were on the panel, is it at Saatchi? That's, yeah, we were talking advertising, brands, humans in the digital age, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I'd read your book, How to Thrive in the Digital Age, which was, it was part of a series. Yeah. But um, basically, I'd, I'd read that book so many times, because I think it was around 2011, you were saying. Well, I don't think there were that many books out, actually, How to Live Online I at got, that I point. got there quite early, I guess. I wrote it in 2011, and it came out in 2012. And it was just this idea that actually our lives 
are digital now. Everything is mediated by technology. And so, you know, we live online. Of course, you wrote a fantastic book about growing up online. And the conversation is no longer, is it bad, is it good? The conversation is now, how do we take this texture of life and live it as well and as richly as possible? What, what are the helpful questions that will enable us to you know, live a little bit more richly and, and you know, maybe treat each other and ourselves slightly better? Because mm. you've written quite a few books now and um, you're someone that, I guess, I've sort of been asking you for advice even just now because you've written lots of different books with 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 different publishers for different reasons, and it feels like um, you mu- you must be someone with a lot of ideas. I guess so. I suppose I'm someone who likes to get their ideas out in the form of writing. It just is really really exciting this idea that you can craft some words and put them down and then have readers and I do like this idea of a conversation so I've written I guess this is my seventh book they've been of various lengths and I I love to get a book out there and get it in front of an audience just to have readers to have an audience is such a privilege and then you get opportunity to you know to go and think new things and try and do it better the next time and try and push that little bit further towards you know kind of putting out something of real value or interest or pleasure because that I guess that's something about non-fiction isn't it that um and I certainly found this that you write it but then it's almost like just the beginning because then you go and take it out there into the world and um this book especially um I'm assuming this but it, it is it for students as well it's very much for students yeah I mean it's I suppose the idea began for me with the thought that lots and lots of people, you know, in jobs, in lives, but especially around that age when you're transitioning from school to university or thinking, what do I do? A lot of people are really kind of bombarded and bewildered by possibilities, by information. You know, people are very, very adept on social media, but at the same time, they maybe don't feel quite in control of it. And it was this idea that you could have a book which is a kind of companion that gives people some strategies for thinking more clearly, for taking control of their time and attention, and for doing this particularly in an academic environment. So, you know, Sage is a wonderful kind of academic publisher, and I have done work with them separately about, you know, how people learn and what people need to learn. And, of course, machines, technology, automated systems are doing so much at the moment and will do even more. So there's this really big question about, well, what do you need to continue learning in this machine age? What are the skills you need? And I I think what we call critical thinking is so important because it's what humans bring to the party. Challenging assumptions, really thinking outside the box, pausing and thinking twice, and being able to engage critically with information systems and all that kind of noise and complexity out there. So it's about having strategies for knowing yourself a little better in this very bewildering age. I love that, and I think that's exactly why I was so desperate to get my hands on it as well, because I think even though my job is to be critical, I find myself getting totally swept up in retweeting something before I've properly read it, or reading a headline and thinking, oh, I immediately have a response. It's kind of... I really think the book as well encourages you to take a little bit more time. Yeah, and time, it begins with time. You know, we live in the age of the hot take, in the age of kind of commodified emotion. And if you think about it, you know, the smartest people in the world being paid a lot of money to get you clicking one more time, to get you revealing one more thing about yourself. Mm. And I think 
when we talk about the way people think, there are these two modes. You know, the Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman talks about fast and slow thinking. And when you get down to it, what this means is that most of the time we are reacting pretty instinctually and relying on kind of shortcuts and habits. But sometimes we have this very special ability to stop, to pause, to think twice, and to kind of look for cognitive reinforcements, whether it's a bit of expertise, a bit of advice, whether it is just pausing to say, actually, this isn't what it seems. And I think how we apply these pauses and strategies in our life is becoming more and more important. And Partly harder, maybe. And harder, because our attention is under assault. And, you know, technology is amazing. It's an astonishing gift. But there's also something very, very challenging and burdensome about having, you know, a magic screen in your pocket mm. that is on from the moment you wake to the moment you sleep and that contains on its few inches of screen real estate all the things in your life that you care about, your friends, your family, your work, your hobbies, your fears, all endless, without limit. And so you are locked in a constant struggle to do more than just rebroadcast, react, and have your kind of strings pulled by the software itself. I, I don't mean to be dystopian about this, but I just think that Almost everybody is grappling in their own way with this. And this is a very beautiful physical book. I'm so pleased that it's a really lovely tactile object. And I would just love it if some people found that it gave them some strategies, some time, some clarity, some moments, some ideas about how to take charge of their own thoughts and, and their own learning. Definitely. I love how visual it is as well, because your last book as well was kind of, there's similarity in the the visual sort of almost like something you'd want to print off and have as a poster. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I did a book with Penguin called Live This Book, which was a kind of journal, almost like a mindfulness journal. It's very, very beautiful. And it got, actually people, you know, took a lot of pictures on, on Instagram, which I didn't expect because, mm. you know, I'm old now. <laughs> and for me, this is the kind of, almost the, the grown-up child of that book, that this is serious content about thinking, about studying, about researching, about writing, about understanding bias and stuff like that. But I love the idea that it can live in a very physical, tactile, beautiful format. It's very eye-catching. There, there was actually one bit in the book that I loved because it made me think... Like At first I was thinking, I don't know if, I, don't know if I agree with that, and then I was thinking that I had to kind of confront my own internet demons it was the bit that said um essentially and i'm pro paraphrasing it badly but that you don't need to reply to an email straight away and actually if you wait long enough you might not have to reply at all yeah that's that can mess with your mind yeah because i was like of course i need to reply to everything immediately and it's, very, but it's not true it, it, it's interesting isn't it because i sometimes play the game of you know imagining what my email inbox wants me to do and it's very clear that from a certain angle, my inbox is a to-do list that has been written for me by other people. Mm. Other people fire these messages into my inbox. And my working life, even, even as a self-employed writer, you know, with very great flexibility compared to lots of people, even then, my day can feel like my task is to work through this inbox mm. line by line and deal with them. But of course, every time I click reply, I populate someone else's inbox. <laughs> and so, you know, from a certain angle, email is a kind of conspiracy designed to have people do nothing but fill up each other's inboxes 
endlessly. And I think breaking this cycle, it's a kind of pause. Time is very, very powerful as a filter. It doesn't mean just be rude and don't reply to your friends. But I think it does mean that actually, to a degree that I find almost worrying, my attitude towards an email genuinely changes as I sit and think. And something that stressed me out or I felt I had to reply to instantly, if it turns out I can wait, I develop a different relationship with it. It becomes something different. And I think for a lot of people, emails they haven't replied to are a kind of horrible burden, a kind of number that's almost unbearable and lurking. And I think actually you can kind of turn this into a positive and say, well, you know, if it's a week and the world hasn't ended, maybe it didn't need a reply at all. And also maybe someone doesn't automatically have a claim on your time and attention just because they're able to fire off a missive into your inbox. Yeah, because the timings have shifted in terms of um, what, how long is a time frame that's now considered rude or, or, or long enough to follow up. I find it interesting that I can have someone email me and then maybe three hours later they think I've died because I haven't replied. It's like, and that's, that's crazy. It should be a week and maybe, are you alive? Not three hours. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you've got to think what's going on there and what's going on there is partly that someone else is unable to live with the kind of the unresolved tension of that email. That, But of course, if you think about the way that social media messages work, what it means is that a large part of our kind of working mental capacity is taken up with sort of unresolved loops, emails, messages, stuff we pushed out, that a little part of us is literally on tenterhooks waiting for a response. And that is very fatiguing. It's very, very paralyzing in terms of thinking your own thoughts, in terms of distinguishing between things that are actually important and things that are merely urgent. Yeah. And did this book come from a light bulb moment of uh, this has to be done or is it being brewing over time? Because I find that we're obviously in a world now where, you know, fake news and everyone is kind of swept up in, in a lot of hysteria um, at the moment, especially. And I and I love this idea of asking why a bit more. Well, I think this has been brewing for a long time for me. And I've spent, I've written six previous books. I, I've spent a lot of time working, you know, in education at different levels, in, in schools and universities, just really trying to look at technology and life and what it means to use technology well. And I've become, over time, obsessed with the idea that taking ideas around critical thought, around challenging assumptions, around asking what's the difference between a good explanation and a bad explanation, what does bias look like, how can I, how can I sniff out bullshit, <laughs> yeah. that these skills are becoming more and more important because everybody is spending all their time using and being used by information systems. And if you want to remain robust in the face of attempted manipulation. And if you want to equip yourself to be someone who, who goes on learning in this age of rapid disruption and feels a sense of ownership over your own, your own thoughts, mm. I, I feel you, you need some of the philosophical equipment that is out there. You know, what's the difference between a good explanation and a bad explanation? Now, it's very simple, actually. A good explanation ought to explain all the things you know as economically as possible. That's basically it. So if I said to you, oh, the world is flat, you'd say, well, that's all very well, Tom, but 
what about all those people who've orbited the Earth? What about gravity? What about all this stuff we've found out through exploring the world and the solar system? And something like the theory of gravity, actually, in its modern form, it explains all the facts that we observe, and it does so without it being incredibly complicated. So you can say, well, it's perfectly possible, for example, that the world is only 6,000 years old and that all the dinosaurs and everything is all a trick being played by a kind of prankster god, in the phrase of the late Bill Hicks. Um, that's possible. It's also possible, though, that this isn't all fake and that it's all explicable through various natural processes like evolution. And of these two explanations, they both explain all the facts, but one of them requires you to believe, on top of all the natural stuff, that there's a kind of prankster god who makes everything look exactly as though it was evolved. And so you can say, well, on balance, one of these explanations is better than the other, according to these criteria. And there's actually some very simple stuff, like pausing to ask why, mm -hmm. that can help you unpick the very complicated stuff. That's so interesting because I also think, like you were saying about this age of bullshit that we live in, actually it's quite easy for your bullshit to get through initially. And I was thinking of someone actually who um, got found out a long time ago now, but Belle Gibson, who was the kind of the conspiracy um, artist be behind the clean eating trend. Don't we all need to um, be careful actually about what we say? And that, and so, for example, if this book is for students and, and maybe they are, they're thinking that we get rewarded for being maybe popular on Instagram, for example, that we actually have a responsibility there as well. We certainly need to be careful, and it's good advice and hard advice to take. I guess one of the things is we need to be prepared to listen to other people and change our minds. And the stuff like we know at the moment, I talk about you know evolution or science or simpler things like diets and health. Now, if you look at the history of, of good dietary advice, it changes all the time. It's not like we're now in possession of some completely final knowledge about food and so on. And I think what we need to embrace is our fallibility, our vulnerabilities. So critical thinking, it's something we do together. I don't have all the answers, but I do know that by approaching things in a certain way, I can mitigate against my own weaknesses by listening to people who know more than me, or by teaming up with lots of other people who have observed things carefully over a long period of time. And I think, interestingly, it crosses over with a lot of the, you know, kind of controversies sweeping around social media at the moment to do with, you know, terrible, terrible, terrible things that men have done to women, that groups of people have done to other people, that, that go on happening. And, you know, it's, it's complex, it's disturbing, it is, I think it's a very, very overwhelming emotional environment to live in, even though the much good comes of it. But one of the powerful things I think you can bring to this is, you know, the phrase... I don't know that much about that, please tell me more. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean you're obliged to agree with somebody, it doesn't mean that they're in possession of the total truth and you know nothing, but I think what it does mean is that collectively, if enough people are prepared to listen to other people with an open mind, over time we might begin to have a slightly better picture mm -hmm. of the way things are. And you know, we might move slightly closer towards a less biased reflection of reality. We're never going to get to a final perfect destination, but 
we have had a lot of human history in which most people don't get to say anything, write anything, record anything, be heard, be listened to or contribute, except in kind of brute economic terms. And really in the last century, we've seen, you know, sort of revolution after revolution in terms of mass literacy, mass communications, mass participation, the emancipation in many parts of the world of women, you know, measures of racial equality. All these things are still imperfect and going on. But there has been a great, great uncorking of, if you like, the majority of humanity. And it's not always pretty, you know. Uh, I think a lot of people are, are worried by many forms of populism. But it doesn't mean that we need an elite to sit there and tell us what's what. It means, in a way, we need a really good, rigorous approach to listening to people with open minds and not being too hasty to rush to judgment. And do you think it's also important to kind of get outside of your own filter bubble? God, yes. I feel like I watched that TED talk like 10 years ago now. I, I, Eli, Eli Paris's talk. Paris, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I remember, I think it was like 2007, eight, maybe? I mean, that was a long time ago. And I remember when he did it and everyone was like, oh yeah, you know, this is interesting. But it's like we're still talking about it and people still haven't really cracked it. It's a great phrase. And of course, the thing about a filter bubble in his phrase is that you don't know it's there. And so when you type a query into a search engine or when you look at a feed in social media, you get some results, but they have been selected by an algorithm to match your profile, your history, and to some degree the likelihood that you'll get an emotional response which will give data to the tech company in question, which can then sell it to advertisers. That's not all that's happening, but you know, he pointed out that it's all very well trying to be open-minded, but if mm. you don't even know how results are being filtered and censored before they get to you, then two important things happen. It's very difficult for you to correct against this. It's very hard for you to know what you don't know. But also, secondly, you are potentially really insulated from what all these other people are saying. So you're seeing all your nice little liberal stuff or conservative stuff mm -hmm. or whatever, and there's lots of other people in their bubbles. And I there's think no... a bit like Stranger Things, with the yeah. upside down. Well, quite. Yes, So, and, and that is this fragmentation. And so it's a very important idea for a democracy that, to some degree, everybody gets to have a bit of a debate about the same stuff. And so that when you all come to cast your votes, you're not effectively living, living in 10,000 different countries. And I think one of the great challenges that technology poses is that people can be potentially fragmented into groups that are totally unaware of each other. And these groups can then achieve tremendous influence um, without there being any kind of positive clash of ideas. And, you know, if we talk about critical as a good word, as critical being a positive thing. It's this idea that you know some stuff and think some stuff, and I know some stuff and think some stuff, and there's a difference between them. And we can do more with that difference than shout at each other or, or try and kill each other. Yeah, it, this idea of a debate being not scary is something I personally had to conquer because I always found it really um, just, I, I would want to hide away from it, but I now believe that I can't do anything without debating it first. Like, I have to have some pushback. Well, that's exactly right. and the most valuable kind of evidence or information is evidence or information 
that contradicts something you believe to be true. There's a hugely important concept called confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. And confirmation bias sums up the universal fact that we are predisposed to notice and to take on board information that confirms things we already believe and to ignore stuff that challenges things we already I believe. I think I'm doing that at the moment with my second book. I'm like, skim, skim, skim. Oh, that proves my point. And we all do this all the time, and we're never going to be free of it, because if you think about it, we inhabit a context. You know, of course you're going to be more receptive to stuff that fits in with what you know about the world, because almost by definition, you can't be receptive to stuff that totally comes from outside your experience and you have no way of dealing with. But I think what we can do and it's very difficult, which is why we need a kind of method to discipline us to do this, is embrace refutation over confirmation. You know, if I believe that the political party you work for is evil, I can go online and I can type Emma's political party evil shock horror, and I can find a million pieces of evidence that support my view, and I can move into my bubble and invite other people to live in my bubble with me and we can all share stories about how terrible you are and we can make up stories but we can just do that but if instead I was to say I wonder I, I have this feeling that Emma's political party is a bit evil I wonder what their policies are I wonder what would change my mind why you know it's very significant that I think these people are evil so I really ought to be as sure as possible that my beliefs have survived the most rigorous kind of challenge it's possible to come up with. And, you know, it means I might go and talk to someone I disagree with and then find out why we disagree. I would almost certainly learn something, even if what I learned was that actually the things I think are robust or reasonable. This stuff is very easy to say and very hard to do. Do you think that's it? Do you think it's just easier to go on Reddit and... And of course. hate someone. Of course it is. I feel like it's almost like a human reaction to be like, I could think about this critically, or I could just wallow in, in like some internet forums. Absolutely, absolutely. And the question is not, can you become perfect? No, 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 you can't. The question is, can you occasionally selectively so. apply a bit of concentration, a bit of a time delay? Can you challenge yourself? And also, you know, if these things are so important to you, if these are your core beliefs about the world, well, have you really scrutinised them? Have you subjected them to a really rigorous test in order to be able to make your case better, in order to be able to persuade other people, or if not persuade other people, then to, you know, sort of put out there good rebuttals of their arguments. And it's interesting, there's, you know, conservative commentator um, Britain, Peter Hitchens, who, who writes for the Mail on Sunday, um, who holds positions that a lot of, you know, sort of liberals would not agree with about all kinds of things. But he is an extremely rigorous and impressive thinker. You know, he, uh, he is someone who I don't agree with on many issues, but I find it extraordinarily, you know, sort of interesting and stimulating to read someone who makes strong, rigorously argued cases from you know sort of first principles for for these points i get so much more out of reading that and challenging myself to answer those queries and if i can't answer them then i ought to change mm -hmm. my mind and, and i guess this really comes back to the fact that you know most people don't change their minds very often but by spending so much time in environments with such a constant stream of information so much of which is at least potentially tailored 
to our pre-existing prejudices and preferences, it can become harder and harder to even temporarily pause, reconsider, change your mind, learn something, adapt. And, and I think it's interesting because if you are able to develop some different habits, what's out there can be astonishingly enriching. People do a bit of both. And you know, one of these habits, I think, is a little bit of a time delay. One of these habits, I think, is really trying to seek out the best examples of the stuff you disagree with, which you can find. Would you read something and then find other sources of that article and, and kind of look at them all objectively? Or yeah, I mean, what I find myself doing, and this may just be because I'm, you know, I'm getting old now and I've got children, so, you know, I haven't, I haven't got the time. You're acting like you're really time. old. Well, I'm, I'm, in my, old. I'm in my late 30s, <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I feel positively withered by digital standards. But one of the things I do is often just not read current stuff. So go back and read a book written by a noted conservative author from a few years ago rather than the blog posts. Mm -hmm. Or go back and read novels and fiction. I find science fiction, speculative fiction, you know, really kind of invigorating. Read stuff from history or, you know, just listen in to people's conversations almost. And of course, you know, there are expert curators of content all over the place who you can turn to for you know, insights into different things. And actually, recently, you know, all the, as we record this, you know, great things are going on with the potential prosecution of people close to Trump. Um, and I've read some amazing Twitter threads, you know, like, on the edge of my seat, Twitter threads. I love a Twitter from, thread. From legal scholars um, who, are, who are putting down, you know, 100 threads, 100 tweet threads, mm -hmm. analyzing the situation in great detail. Um, and, you know, there are conservative commentators who I don't agree with politically who provide very, very kind of valuable stuff. But I, so, uh, you know, I find myself reading less and reading more serendipitously and just trying to kind of get myself away from the relentless, panting pressure of the present moment. Sounds like you've got your feeds online in order and you've kind of curated it to, to in a good way. Oh, it only, only sounds like that when I'm talking about it. But, I mean, no, I, I, I've recently gone through a bit of a clean out. I think it's important to sort of be seeing good sources, but um, it's interesting because earlier this year I went did the Oxford Union and I was freaking out because I hate debates. I mm. find them really confrontational. And what was interesting is they said to me, you can pick either side but actually it's to test your debating skills. You you could debate something you don't believe in. And I thought, that's really interesting because it's taking, it's almost taking the person out of it. That's very good. And of course, a classic fallacy, a classic form of bad argument is to attack the person. You know, an ad hominem means saying, oh, you know, anything you say about this must be wrong because you work for a pharmaceutical company, you work for the government, or because you don't have children, so anything you say about children must be wrong. And of course, it's a fallacy because what might be a qualified point, which is, well, perhaps there's some things you don't know about children if you don't have them. You pretend that that is a kind of knockdown, I can ignore you point. And I think it's very, very healthy to try to debate the ideas rather than the person. Yeah. And very difficult. Yeah. I did the union early this year talking about fake news and I lost um, and I, I found it very hard just not to be depressed by that. It was entirely, you know, it was 
entirely about the debate and so on. But I, yeah. you know, I was sort of saying that fake news is bad and effective, and that people voted. And they, was they it were quite close. It was quite close. And interestingly, I, I mean, I, I'm biased. I, I thought the arguments that won the debate were rubbish arguments. But I thought they were rubbish arguments which flattered the audience because someone stood up and said, all this stuff about fake news is patronising. You're all smart people. You don't need someone telling you what is and isn't fake news. You have the right to, to, to view what you want online. Go be free. You know, don't let people talk down to you. Don't let a bunch of elitist, namby-pamby liberals tell you that there's only one form of acceptable news and so on. And that's a very appealing line of argument. And it's really hard to make this case, which I genuinely believe, that freedom is not someone saying, just do anything you like. To say that laissez-faire, to say that anything goes, is not necessarily a meaningful freedom. Or to say that, you know, saying to people, you choose, I'm empowering you, and then lying to them. It's very challenging because elitism is a very, very powerful accusation. And for very good reasons, for very, very good historical reasons. You know, if you look at the elites through history, almost every privileged elite has participated in some kind of either systematic or arbitrary abuse of, of people who are disempowered. And broadly speaking, historically speaking, you know, where there are power relations, the person with more power, sometimes some of these people, you know, use that power to you know, get what they want, irregardless of what the other person thinks. And so, you know, we have a great problem with trying to talk about, you know, kind of good, good elitism, you know, expertise that is meaningful. Um, you probably would like to have, you know, heart surgery performed by someone who's a trained surgeon rather than somebody who has really strong feelings about surgery. But... That's the kind of expertise that's very easy to test and demonstrate. And, you know, expertise in a lot of other areas, like politics, is, is verging on fictional. Because, actually, you don't need expertise at politics as such. What you probably need is a whole variety of qualities to do with compassion, empathy, intellect, understanding, and hard work, which a lot of people who work in politics don't have. It's interesting with tech as well, though, because you could be an expert and you could be, like, quite young. Yeah, and... The That's ageism there is, I think, interesting because I, I feel like I've been a product of ageism in many ways sometimes just because I feel like I can call myself in some areas, very niche areas, an expert. But then could people say, well, you can only be an expert when you're like in your 50s? Yeah, and that's really toxic because that is, in a sense, people taking the word expert and saying, well, actually, what expert means is, you know, like old white guys say. And if you're not old and white, you can't join the club. And I think one of the very helpful ways we can talk about this is by saying that expertise is always specific. No one is an expert in everything. And almost all experts um, outside their area of expertise are not to be trusted. As though we need to have the courage to be specific. You know, expertise develops when people have a certain amount of exposure to a certain area about which it's possible to be expert. Because, of course, there are areas in which you can't have expertise. No one is an expert at predicting dice rolls of fair dice because there is no way for a human to become good at predicting a fair dice roll. It's just random. Um, but, again and again, people overclaim expertise. Mm. And people who don't have expertise don't realise it. There's a famous phenomenon called the Dunning-Kruger effect named after the people who researched it. But essentially it means that if you know nothing, you have no idea how little you know. And so you're very dangerous. 
Uh, again, I can think of certain politicians that might apply to. And so, you know, LinkedIn as well. I think someone did a search of expert on LinkedIn, oh. and it was like, I mean, millions of results. It's a pretty toxic word, but you know, we can frame this positively. You know, and this is partly what the critical thinking book is about. It's it's saying, you no, know, let's not be miserable. Let's look at some techniques and strategies. And one of the things we can try to do and enable each other to do is to put up our hands, whether we're young or old, uh, whoever we are, and say, I, I genuinely have some expertise in this area, you should listen to me, here is my contribution. And then, for people young or old, and maybe especially old, to put up their hands and say, yeah, I have some expertise, but, I, but not in this area, mm -hmm. so I, I need to be told. And, you know, people, the difficulty is, you know, I, I, I find people, some people come to me and want me to be an expert, and I have perhaps some expertise in some areas, but of course, People want to kind of one-stop shop, and they want you to come along and be expert, and you kind of radiate a general reassuring confidence about some stuff. <laughs> and it's very difficult to say no to that kind of thing. Yeah. Philosopher Harry Frankfurt wrote a lovely book called On Bullshit, <laughs> and he defined bullshit as talking about something when you have no interest in truth or falsity. You don't care. You're not lying because you don't even know what the truth is. You're just interested in effect. You're just interested in having an emotional impact. And he said, well, we live in an age of bullshit because more and more people are obliged to spend more and more time offering their opinions about stuff they don't have a clue about. And can you imagine social media if it had any kind of honesty about expertise? It would basically be for every one you know, update or, or, or message or tweet that said, you know, this is this is what's going on. It would be everybody else saying, I don't really know about this. I don't, you know, your entire stream would be people saying, goodness me, look at this stuff in America. I don't know a lot about that. Goodness me, look at this down the road. I don't know about that. Look at this meal. I don't know much about that. Look at this coffee. I don't know much about coffee. People aren't doing that. It's quite a fun game for me mm. to imagine that I delete 999 tweets out of a thousand. But it's interesting because, of course, that's me being elitist, perhaps. Uh, you know, and I'm not saying these people's opinions don't matter. I don't care about them. I don't care about their feelings. I think it's just that we shouldn't confuse our totally legitimate expression of feelings about something with an expert verdict. Yeah, I know. I love that example you used of the heart surgery. It's like it is. It is. You do need to have certain expertise because without that, then we're all a little bit screwed, maybe. It is unfortunately an entirely possible future that because we're spending so much time shouting at each other and going with our guts, rather than getting a grip with what's really going on in the world outside, we may actually manage to more or less destroy this one fragile little place that we get to exist in the universe because we just <laughs> shouted constantly about the way we feel mm -hmm. rather than got to grips with some of the facts, and I say facts, you know, some of the mechanics of what is actually going on. You know, facts is a very difficult world. Everyone's got their own facts. Mm. You know, you bring your own facts to the party. Mm. But I think just because there's lots of different accounts of something doesn't mean that there's no such thing as a better account God, we're in a worse such account. A, such an interesting time, which is why yeah. this book seriously is, is needed. But talking of books quickly, <laughs> just before... Um, you go. I wanted to ask you about um, this move into fiction that you you've got two um, yep. books coming out in 2019, along the topics that you know so well about. I mean, I don't. I've not read them yet, so I don't know. But I, from reading, I writing from reading the <laughs> sort of synopsis and stuff, it there's tech and there's dystopia and there's 
kind of gaming and there's the internet. Yeah. What's it been like moving from a non-fiction world to taking these topics as big and bold as you want? Kind of frightening and wonderful. I mean, I for me, all writing is it's a kind of version of the same thing. You know, you've got the stuff in your head and you're trying to bring it to an audience and you're trying to bring it to life and you're trying to create something people want to read. And I've always been pretty addicted to science fiction and to thrillers. So I've, I've yes, I've got this opportunity. I've got a, a deal with Hodder to write two thrillers set in the world of the dark web, which means talking about the dark underbelly of international espionage, conspiracies, blending fact and fiction. And what's dark web mean? Well, so the dark web simply means networks that are not the everyday internet that you search on Google, but that only exist on computers running a very secure browser called Tor, or the Onion Router. And it is a kind of peer-to-peer network that plenty of people use for plenty of reasons, but that some of the worst people in the world have used to undetectably and untraceably uh, you know, buy and sell drugs, lives, weapons, all these kinds of things. And in fact, Jamie Bartlett has written a, a book called The Dark Net, which is uh, a fantastic, fantastically well-researched and lively account of this. And just to bring, fiction is awesome because you get to tell a story, you get to take all these facts and all these things that you think are fascinating and then you can just kind of string them together in whatever way you feel kind of works best and is most lively and engaging and will bring people along for the ride. And so it's kind of terrifying writing, you know, writing fiction when I've done a lot of non-fiction, but a wonderful opportunity. And it really does feel linked to critical thinking because I want to encourage people to think for themselves. And one of the ways you do this is not by shouting think, it's by just giving people stuff that's worth thinking about and saying, you know, did you know that this is what's going on? Did you know that these are some of the ways in which people are recruited to terrorism, in which people are smuggled across borders, in which hackers in one country can take down and hold the ransom hospitals Um, or electricity grids in another, in which you yourself could be impersonated, have your identity stolen, or find yourself, you know, somewhere you didn't expect to be because of a, you know, a shady transaction that's gone undetected and so on. So it's really, it's really fun. (laughs) Well, it is going to be, is it going to be scary? Do you want it to be kind of quite thrilling? The funny thing is I want it to be thrilling, but I want it to be quite funny because it's all so serious and it potentially makes us so miserable because it is slightly based in reality yeah i like the idea of having a smart resourceful hero who's quite funny who can solve these problems but who is you know a kind of special ordinary person and you know i am an optimist i say all these kind of miserable things but you know i i look at what we have done and made with technology between us i look at the scientific method, our ability to describe the furthest depths and the origin of the universe, ourselves in microscopic detail, to bring seven billion people together in a connected mass. You would have been written off as a wild-eyed utopian 50 years ago if you'd said we'll have seven billion human beings, almost all of whom throughout the entire world are linked together by handheld devices that carry video and images that, that function as currency that allow them to vote. If 1.1 billion adults in India have all been given 
a digital identity that allows them to pay tax and vote and be measured and participate in you know the world's largest, messiest, and most crazy democracy. And so you know we have utopia and dystopia as ever unevenly distributed on top of each other. We are powerful together. Individually, we may feel weak and overwhelmed. Together, collectively, we are powerful. We can build understanding. We can gain understanding of each other. We can solve problems. We can do amazing things. We can wreck this planet or we can make it better than it's ever been. And I would like to think that by no means are we doomed. There's a great deal to be hopeful about and grateful for. Um, and you know, if we can all think a little bit better, a little bit harder, even some of the time, then maybe we can tip the scales towards the good stuff. I really like that note to end on. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Tom. That was really interesting. Um, and if I don't stop it now, I probably could talk to you for another two hours. So thank you so much. My very great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you.